0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, and, and welcome visitors. It is good to gather with you this morning to, to praise, praise our God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of, of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. I would encourage you after our, our service ends to, to hang around afterwards and uh, allow us to get a chance to, to greet you and get to know you. But let me ask you this as we start. What do you hope for? What do you hope for? Maybe you have some big plans for the week ahead, plans to, to finish a project at, at home or at work or see a, a dear friend. Or maybe, maybe when I ask you that question, you think of something bigger picture. You're hoping for a promotion at work or a a new job or a, a new relationship. Maybe it's something that you're relatively certain will happen and you're just, you're just waiting. Or maybe you think of something that's just a, a glimmer, glimmer of hope, a strong desire but no clear path forward. Or maybe you're thinking right now, I don't have hope. Maybe in answer to the question, what do you hope for, you're hoping to have hope. Is hope available to us, even in the midst of, of pain and loss? Can we have hope even when our desires seem so far off? Let me assure you, even if you feel full of hope today, there will come a time, maybe even soon, that you will be searching for hope. Our sermon passage today, Genesis 50, includes the accounts of, of deeply felt grief and sudden fear. Joseph and his brothers mourn the death of their father. The brothers fear the possibility of retribution from, from Joseph. But even in the midst of loss and fear, the message of Genesis 50 is that we can have hope. So my hope for you today is that God's word will show you that Christians can have hope even in the midst of loss and grief because our sovereign God means it for our good. So please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 50. Genesis chapter 50, and what I am calling today the hopeful brothers and the sovereign God. Genesis 50, the hopeful brothers and the sovereign God. You can find that starting on page 43 of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew rack. You'll be helped to to open the Bible, to read along with me, and and keep it open, as I'll be referring back to it often. So we come this morning to the last chapter in the book of Genesis, finishing a study that we began in the fall of 2020. This is our 42nd and final sermon in the book of Beginnings. In our first sermon in Genesis, I argued That this book is the foundation of the Bible. On Genesis, on this book, is built a straight and immovable tower of truth as the Bible continues to unfold. The book of beginnings, Genesis, addresses the most fundamental and foundational questions of life Who is God? How does everything exist? What is mankind? What is our purpose? Why is there good? Why is there evil? How do we have a relationship with this God? And the answers we've explored in these past 41 sermons are among the most important truths about our reality. Genesis is, at the end of it, a story about God because God is the center of all reality. This eternal God has created all things by his, his word, creating them good, and concluding his act of creation was to make mankind, you and I, as his image bearers, to, to fill the world and spread his glory everywhere. But mankind rebelled against God, believing the twisted lies of the serpent. And since then, this story has been marked by, by sin. Cain killing Abel death spreading to all mankind, a a universal flood in judgment. But God, through the pages of this history, has been working out His purpose to restore blessing to His people, to restore sinful mankind back to his, His presence in relationship with Him. So God, through Abraham and his descendants, has been working to create a people for Himself. And through it, we have noticed that at every stop along the journey, it has looked forward to a promised offspring of Eve, offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, the Deliverer. And now, brothers and sisters, in its last chapter, it ends with hope. God's people can have hope because our sovereign God means even evil for our good. So Moses has written this account because past is lesson for The future. So, this is true for us two saints that we can have hope even in the morning of loss that our sovereign God means it for our good. So, read with me the 26 verses of Genesis 50, the hopeful brothers and the sovereign God. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. As well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place." After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Makir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die Well, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Having read God's word, please now pray with me that God would give us his help in believing and obeying his word. Please, please pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is right for us to pause and to bring our hearts before you. Lord, asking that you would now give us help by your spirit to believe and obey all that has been written. Lord, you testify to us in in Romans 15 that that whatever has been written in the former days was written for our instruction. Lord, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Father, we pray today that you would, Lord, you would do that. That you would instruct us by what was written in the former days. Lord, that through it you would give us endurance and, and by the encouragement of your word that we would have hope. Father, that you would give us hope not only in the midst of of our days, but, Lord, in all the days that are ahead and through our death, that we would hope that with Joseph you will surely visit us and bring us up from our graves to everlasting life. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Well, saints, the, the main idea of our passage this morning might be this. The command to have hope. In the morning of loss that our sovereign God means it for our good. Have hope. In the morning of loss that our sovereign God means it for our good. This passage contains evidence of the fall that has cursed mankind from Genesis 2 on, right? Sin, death, pain, deception, fear. But but there is in this passage an undeniable current Drawing our hearts upwards, a current of of hope that it will not always be this way. God, again, will surely visit you. Have hope in the morning of loss that our sovereign God means it for good. We will have three points to explore this passage, passage this morning. Our first point, salvation's dress rehearsal. That in verses 1 through 14. Salvation's dress rehearsal. Second, God's good purposes in 15 through 21. God's good purposes. And finally, Joseph's certain hope. That in verses 22 through 36, Joseph's certain hope. Salvation's dress rehearsal, God's good purposes, and Joseph's certain hope. So our first point, brothers and sisters, salvation's dress rehearsal In verses 1 through 14, in a a theater production, a dress rehearsal is a rehearsal of the play as if it were live, dressed just as they would be in the actual performance. And I think something like that is what is happening here in the first 14 verses of our passage. And a dress rehearsal of the Exodus, but opening night is many, many years away, a little context, though, at first will help us. Jacob, also called Israel, the father of the 12 sons that make up the nation, has has died. So surrounded by his sons in the last chapter, prospering in the haven of Egypt, Jacob blessed his sons in, in utterances of, of prophecy and, and then breathed his last. And in that very room where Jacob had been gathered to his people, our, our scene begins. Look with me at Verse one. Then Jacob fell on his deceased father's face and wept over him and kissed him. These first few verses describe the mourning in light of Jacob's death. Jacob weeps and, and kisses his departed father. See how much he he loved him. I imagine the last seventeen years of, of Jacob's life were his best. We don't know much of what happened in those 17 years between the time that they they settled in Egypt and when when Jacob died there in in 49. I assume that that's, that's good news. There was no crisis to report. Joseph, who had spent 22 years without his father, got to spend another 17 years with him. In fact, this fulfills what God had promised to Jacob in Genesis 46, says Jacob left Canaan to come to Egypt, you might remember Genesis 46 verse 4, Joseph's hand shall close you, your eyes. And that is what we see happen here in the first scene of Genesis 50. Even in the little details, God is tender in his faithfulness. Well, in in verse 2, Joseph begins to prepare Jacob's body for burial. He commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, Jacob. The Egyptians would embalm the, the wealthy to preserve their bodies for the afterlife. They believed that for the soul to survive, the body too needed to be preserved. That's not what's happening here. That is not Joseph's belief. Rather, Joseph is preparing Jacob for his final journey, what they had sworn to do for their father, to bring his body back to Canaan, to that that small plot of land that that Abraham had bought, the the first tiny deposit of the inheritance in the promised land. It says it takes 40 days to embalm him, a process of removing the organs, washing and drying the body and, and wrapping it tightly In linen. And it says the the Egyptians actually honor Jacob with 70 days of mourning there in verse 3. 70 days. That's apparently quite the honor because uh, it's just short of the 72 days that were required for the the mourning at the death of a, a Pharaoh. Friends, let me remind you here in this this first scene that, that death is unnatural. It's unnatural. You might object, pointing out how deeply it's integrated into our existence. Every person dies. Whole ecosystems are, in fact, built upon the cycle of life and death. But this is not the way God made the world. As we end the book of Genesis, we have to remember where it all began, that God made the world without death. Adam and all his children and all of creation were subjected to death because of the curse of sin. Genesis three nineteen. You are dust, and in the curse it says to dust you shall return. You know, today, in twenty twenty three, life expectancy is twice what it was just a hundred years ago. Because of the advances in in medical science, many of us never see death up close. We live in a world that tries to to hide death, keep it behind closed doors. But hiding from death is a fool's errand. No one gets out of life alive. Because we are all under the curse of sin, death will confront us all sooner or later. Or later, and in fact, it is honesty about the certainty of death that can bring hope to life. the The Bible means to cultivate death awareness in us. There is, in fact, an an ancient Christian tradition known as memento mori. It's where Christians would keep a, a skull or an hour or hourglass on on your desk to remember. Death, memento mori. You know, before any of us would have a reason to look for an immortal hope, we must remember that we are mortal. Before we start searching for a hope that cannot decay, we have to consider that one day the flesh of our bodies will decay in the ground. Death is an enemy, it is is to be mourned, it separates us from. From the family and and friends, the ones that we love. We must learn from the example of Joseph here in verse 1. It is not pious to act as if death is no big deal. Even Jesus, do you remember? Weeping and grieving. Literally it says angry at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. And that knowing that just in days he would be raised from the dead. To quote a line from a superhero, what is grief if not love persevering? The application here, saints, is simple. Grieve death. Be like Joseph. Grieve death. Be sensitive to it. Do not be conformed to our world that trivializes death. Remember your death. Whether you are young or old today, look down at your hand and picture it decaying long after your life has ended. If the Lord does not return first. I ask again, what do you hope for? Can that hope survive death? We need a hope that can go into the grave and climb out. A, a hope that when slain can burst forth in glorious day. We need a hope named Jesus Christ. You know, Jacob's hopes did not die with him. He had instructed his sons to bury him in Canaan because he knew that God would be faithful to bring the nation there. So our story continues with the trip back to the grave in Canaan, what I'm calling Salvation's dress rehearsal. Starting in verse 4, Joseph sends messengers to the household of Pharaoh to get permission to to leave. He quotes there the the oath that his father put him under in verse 5. Can you imagine? He says that when he says, I'm about to die, in the tomb that I hewed out for myself is where he'd be buried. Can you imagine digging your own grave? Abraham owned a cave on that land. And it seems that, that while Jacob was living there, he, he had gone to that cave and, and carved out a shelf in that cave for his own body in the wall, a, a, a niche where his bones would be laid along with, with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and, and his own wife, Leah. Thinking your own grave is, is quite a, a way to remember death. But what is remarkable about the ensuing story, story is its similarity to a later story. This procession we have leaving Egypt is described in in remarkably similar terms as the later Exodus. What happens in the next book of the Bible? You might notice in verse 7, all the servants or slaves of Pharaoh go up. It speaks of chariots and horsemen. The word he uses, "company," is what Exodus uses time and time again to describe who leaves Egypt in the future. And in fact, what I think is most remarkable is is the route they take. The route they take seems to be roundabout, going the long way. You might have noticed in verse ten, it talks about them arriving at the threshing floor of a tod, but it's it's beyond the Jordan. Now, if you're down down here in Egypt, Canaan is up to the to the northeast, right? The, the Jordan is on the far side of Canaan, and here they are beyond the Jordan. They've taken the long way, not the most obvious route to take, but it mirrors the route that Israel will take later in the Exodus, crossing into the promised land over the Jordan. Certainly there are obviously important differences, chiefly now that they go with Egypt, not pursued by them. To illustrate, I, I think what we have here in Genesis 50 is something what what you see in a good musical score for a movie. Composers will use what they call themes, themes in their composition. For example, the Imperial March. You know this one, right? Dun 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 da dun dun da dun, 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 dun. The Imperial March, right? And that theme or, or variations of it will play in Star Wars whenever Darth Vader appears on screen. And, and in fact, when they went back to write the prequel movies, they used that same theme in more subtle ways when an event was foreshadowing the, the villain's future. And I think that's exactly what is happening here for us in Genesis fifty. Right? The theme, we'll call it not, not the Imperial March, but the Exodus March is, is being played for, a variation on that theme. There are a lot of recognizable notes for us here, or words being played. In fact, we've seen subtle hints of this already in the book of Genesis, when, when Abraham himself went down into Egypt, or when, when Jacob was delivered from servitude in a foreign land, when he was with Laban. This isn't just merely genius literary feature Moses is a particularly good writer no it's God giving hope to his people What he's doing here is a preview of what God will do Before they have to endure generations of slavery in Egypt God has foreshadowed their deliverance I don't know that Joseph or or anyone was aware of it at the time but God was God, who rules over Egypt and even the path of their journey, was showing them what they would eventually do. And certainly Moses, our author, now recognizes it and includes it here for that reason. You you notice that none of the other patriarchs get such a long description of their burial. It's usually just a fragment of a verse. Moses is spending so much time here because he's building the case, even if it is in hindsight That God knows the end from the beginning. And because he does, we can have hope. All of history, every event is ruled by our sovereign God. So he can ensure the end long before it happens. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Yes, this time, the heart of Pharaoh is loving to Israel... When the the later Pharaoh's heart is hard to Israel, it is because God is working out the counsel of his will. He says in Exodus 4.21, I will harden his heart. Why? To show his power in him, that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 9.16. But what's more, I think this is doing more than just foreshadowing the later Exodus. It is... Foreshadowing something even further in the future. This picture of Egypt joining with Israel in the trek to the promised land is a picture that the prophets will repeat. I could read to you several examples, but, but listen to Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. If you're paying attention to the Exodus march theme, it should be playing loudly in your ears. Do you hear it? In the prophets, the expectation, the hope that the nations will come with Israel to worship God in their deliverance. A picture at the end of time when all nations will gather in the final exodus from this age to the next. Genesis Chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, then, is not just a dress rehearsal of what will happen to Israel when they leave Egypt. It is a shadow, a preview of what will happen when all of God's people leave this world for the world to come. What will happen at the end of time, when all nations go up with the people of God to the holy mountain, Zion, the heavenly city. Salvation's dress rehearsal. So the question for us is, have you rehearsed? Are, are you ready? Do you know your lines in the play? Where will you be on that day when the performance is live? I wonder even who will be clinging to your robe, as we read of in Zechariah 8, entering with you into the holy city because they have seen here and now that God is with you. This is a living hope for our future because Christ is, Lives, Because through Christ, God is unrelenting in his good purposes. And that brings us to our second point, saints number two, God's good purposes in verses 15 through 21. Having made the journey to Canaan and back, this scene takes place back in Egypt. To remind you, it has been at least 17 years since the brothers reconciled with Joseph back in Genesis 45 when they came to Egypt. We time that. Jacob was 130. He dies at 147. So it's been at least 17 years. After testing and proving their repentance, Joseph there revealed himself to his brothers. But it seems after all that time, his brothers are still not sure if Joseph has forgiven them. Verse 15, it says says that they assume, now that their father is dead, that now Joseph will pay them back for all the evil that they had committed against him. The evil that is now four decades old. So they seem to lie. They fabricate some last words of Jacob there in verse 16, asking, commanding Joseph to forgive them. Once they send this message to to Joseph, they themselves appear before Joseph in verse 18, bowing down before him, calling themselves his servants. But at the sight of this, at these words, Joseph weeps again, verse 17. You're not keeping count, but this is the seventh time in the narratives of Joseph that he has wept. Let me just say briefly, don't buy into the stereotypes of true masculinity. Whenever Joseph weeps, it is out of compassion and love for others. And it's no less the case here in verse 17. His heart is broken that his brothers would not trust him. I think it's true for us, too, that sometimes we have trouble believing that we're forgiven—it seems to us too good to be true—that God will change His mind even 17 years later. Well, I think we have in Joseph his steadfast forgiveness, an example, a picture of God's gracious love for sinners. That even when we doubt His forgiveness, we can have the assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That we have free and full. Forgiveness. So Joseph offers his brothers assurance in verses eight or nineteen through twenty-one. He speaks kind words to them to to bring assurance of forgiveness, to remind them of what they have apparently forgotten. And actually, what we see here in the example of Joseph is precisely what the New Testament will repeat. Will will teach us that our attitude should be towards those that we forgive. So first in verse. Verse 19, that they need not fear, he says, do not be afraid, because Joseph is not in the place of God. Joseph is not in the place of God. In other words, Christians recognize that we don't have the right to repay. When others wrong us, it is not our place to be jury, judge, and executioner. There is only one judge, and we are not in that place. It is God. Romans twelve nineteen will say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That is what, what Joseph is saying here in, in verse nine. he, 19. He is recognizing that he is not in the place of God. It is not his to avenge himself. He will not avenge himself. But don't miss the opposite, saints. Joseph is affirming that it is God's right to judge and repay evil. There is one who, who has the right to repay the evils done against us. God. God is a righteous and omniscient judge. He knows every evil committed in thought, in word, and in deed. And his justice is perfect in He never avenges beyond what is deserved. And of course, God consistently teaches us that our sins deserve his good wrath. To sin in any way is to disdain the infinite beauty and goodness of our God. Like Joseph, saints, we can forgive and persevere in our forgiveness over decades because God is a just Judge To exact revenge is, in fact, to usurp the place of God. It is to return evil with evil. So like Joseph, entrust yourself to the just judge while doing good. Second, we see in verse 20, Joseph trusts God's providence even in man's malice. Joseph trusts God's providence even in man's mouths. Verse 20 reads As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. One author calls verse 20 one of the most important statements in all the Bible about the providence of God. It's a truth simple enough to summarize in, in one verse, but deep enough to need 13 chapters. Of Genesis to demonstrate in the life of Joseph. Joseph's story has been filled with evidences of God's providence, of his invisible hand directing and governing all events and people to do exactly as his hand has ordained from all eternity. Joseph here in verse 20 affirms that, that what they did really was, was evil. Verse 20, you meant evil against me in their hatred. In their murderous plot, in their greed and deceptions, they intended evil. He's not excusing them, calling it just a mistake or a lapse in judgment. They did mean evil. But in their intentions, God had his own. This is a a mystery that we cannot unravel. How it is possible that, that men... Can have one intention. But in the same act. God has his own intention. And in that God is not the author. Or approver of evil. But it is a part of his purposes. It does not derail. Or or defeat his plans. Just as men. Mean one act of evil. In the same act. God can mean it for good. So so God is. Or Joseph is saying that. That God meant their hatred of Joseph. For evil. Good. God meant their sale of Joseph into slavery for good. God meant their deception of of Jacob over 22 years for good. God meant Joseph's unjust imprisonment for good. All the evil was meant by God to achieve good. Here in verse 20, particularly, that, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We have to to note carefully exactly what, what Joseph is saying here. John Piper puts it this way, be careful not to water this down. It does not say God used it for good or God turned it for good. It says God meant it for good. They had an evil purpose. God had a good purpose God didn't start cleaning up halfway through this sinful affair thinking how he can make it work. No. He had a purpose, a meaning from the beginning. From the start, he meant it for good. Saints, this is not just a a tidy truth for a textbook. God's providence over even sin is meant to humble human pride. It is meant to intensify human worship and to our everlasting joy to shatter human hopelessness. This is what it means for God to be God, to be holy. He is completely set apart with nothing that we can compare Him to in all of creation. He is completely and utterly unique, holy. I wonder, is your God big enough to reign over evil and death, to manage a million, a billion evils and accomplish one great purpose, His everlasting glory? So again, I I ask, what do you hope for? What do you hope for? Can it, can your hope survive even the evil plans of men? Joseph's hopes did not expire when he suffered evil. Genesis fifty verse twenty here is, is the Old Testament equivalent of the beloved New Testament, Romans eight twenty-eight. That reads, Romans eight twenty eight reads, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, it says, work together for good. What they mean for evil, what you even mean for evil. God has the wisdom, the power, and the love to work for your good. You know, we, saints, can have the power to forgive others of their evil against us because we have the confidence that evil is not the last word. In the midst of evil, God means good. And the bedrock of our assurance of that, why can we believe that, God meaning evil for good, is not only the life of Joseph, but the death of Jesus. What Satan and sinful men meant for evil, their hatred, their rejection, the unjust arrest, and wicked murder of Jesus, what they meant for evil, God meant, he planned, he purposed for evil. Good, that all who believe in him would be saved from sin through his death and resurrection. God used the greatest evil in history, the slaughter of the innocent son of man for the greatest good in history. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners suffering the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So now simply by faith we can be united to Christ and receive salvation from our sins and rescue from judgment. But did you notice? There, there I did. It. I said God used. God used it. That is true. We can, we can say God used or, or sing you, you turn, but I can be stronger. I can go deeper. God meant it. He didn't just use it. He meant it. He had planned it all along. He had a purpose, a meaning from the beginning, from the start. He meant it for our eternal good, for all who are called according to his purpose. We can have hope in the morning of loss that our sovereign God means it for our good. And so we can forgive others because of God's providence over man's malice. And third, in verse 21 We see Joseph treat them with kindness. He he there provides for them, for their little ones. He he comforts them. Our forgiveness should be accompanied by practical acts of of kindness and and comforting words. This is, again, what the, the New Testament teaches, that we are to leave vengeance to God and instead repay evil for good. Romans 12 continues after what we read earlier in verse 19. Romans twelve twenty. to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. So even when e- people commit evil against us, because we are confident in God's providence over man's malice, we are not to respond in kind. We are to, to extend practical acts of provision, food and, and water, to overcome evil with good. And if that, against those who do evil, how much more than those we have forgiven? You know, the cold shoulder might feel satisfying, but, but God shows us a, a better way. So church, if you are seeking the forgiveness of offender or pursuing reconciliation after forgiveness... Consider what practical acts of kindness you can do to build affection, much like Joseph assures his brothers of here in Genesis 50, verse 21. Invite them over for a meal. Literally, give them food and water. Maybe write them a, a kind letter. Be as simple as smiling and, and hugging. You know, twice in this passage, Joseph Joseph urges his brothers not to be afraid. They are fearful. They appre- are, uh, view the future with apprehension. You see his words, his first words there in verse nineteen, and in his final words there in verse twenty-one. Fear is an apprehension of the future. It is not considering the, the future with hope. They were fearing the threat of Joseph's revenge. Well, Joseph here is trying to assure them with hope. He is inviting them to replace their fear. With hope, to anticipate good that is ahead for them with him. And that brings us to our third and final point Joseph's certain hope. In verses 22 through 36, Joseph's certain hope. The last five verses record Joseph's death. He lived, it says, 110 years. So we're jumping ahead from what we just read. 54 years that means he spent 93 years of his life living in Egypt in verse 23 it says he has the pleasure of seeing generations of his children both Manasseh and Ephraim but as he approached death in in verse 24 he had a certain hope of God's future visitation that he will come to their aid So he too, much like Jacob before him, makes makes his brothers swear a promise to bury him in Canaan, but not immediately upon his death, not yet. No, instead, in verse 25, they are to take him with him when God visits. He is so certain of God's visit that he says, ah, just wait, just wait until you all go. Don't make an extra trip for me. Joseph went to his tomb absolutely hopeful that God would visit his people and bring them up again. And of course, we know this is what happens. His confidence, his hope was well founded. If you jump ahead into to the story of Exodus in Exodus 12, after the, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, and the death of the firstborn in Egypt, the tenth plague, Moses and all Israel begin the Exodus. And what do we read of in Exodus 13, 19? but that they bring Joseph with them. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. Quoting from Exodus 50. And though it took a long time, his bones eventually settle in in Israel. In the last verses of the book of Joshua, the story of the conquest and settlement in Israel, we read Joshua As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. It took nearly 500 years after the death of Joseph, between the the slavery and the, the wandering in Egypt, but Joseph was right. What was prefigured in the funeral procession, God did. He brought his people out of Egypt into the land that he had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, or Joseph's, hope was certain. You know, as as Joseph faced death, he could be certain of God's visitation. In the same way, our Savior Jesus Christ was able to approach death with hope. Our Savior went to the tomb absolutely confident that God would also visit him, not after 500 years, but after three, to bring him up from his coffin to new life. Friends, the the certainty of our hope is not only in God's sovereign power over sin in the death of Christ, but God's sovereign power in visiting Jesus and raising him from the death. And the Bible teaches that, that all those who trust in his death for sins are also raised with Christ in his resurrection. And we are therefore born again to first Peter says, a living hope. A living hope. Because Christ lives, hope is alive. And because Christ can never die again, our hope cannot die. It is as we will sing in just a moment, in Christ alone my hope is found. He, he is the cornerstone, the solid ground of our hope, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Joseph's hope in the face of death was vindicated. We too know that our hope in Christ will be vindicated, that he will visit us too. It it might take 500 years, but Christ will come and visit us. We will too be resurrected, raised from our graves in glorified bodies fit for the new earth. Brothers and sisters, visitors, hope is available to all even in the midst of pain and loss. We can have hope even if it seems far off because Christ, our Savior, lives and is near. So what do you hope for. I invite you this morning to rejoice in the hope that survives death and the evil plans of men. That is an invitation to rejoice in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice now in the hope that we have offered to us in Christ, a hope that survives death and that rules over even the evil plans of men. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace this morning to transfer all of our hopes, Lord, onto him. Lord, we pray that that we would look to the future not with fear, not with apprehension of what is ahead, even at death. But Lord, to know that, that since Christ lives and cannot die again, we too will be raised with him into newness of life. Father, I pray that this same power would give us the grace to forgive others this morning. As Joseph was able to forgive his brothers, Lord, knowing that you alone are judge. Lord, that in your reign over evil, Lord, you mean it for our good. Father, that we would instead show kindness to those who mean evil against us. It's in Christ's name that we pray all this to the glory of Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we'll have a a chance to proclaim our hope in Christ alone in just a moment. But I would invite you to spend just a moment in silent reflection, considering where your hopes are this morning. And considering how you might lift them from those places and place them in Christ alone. Please take a moment of silent reflection.